Hello and welcome to episode 249 of the Water Space Land podcast. I'm Weishan, your host, and today I have Joanna here with me. Hey Joe, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Um, today is Blue Monday, which is supposed to be the most um, sad day of the year. But oh. yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. It's a nice and sunny day in London and uh, things are, I, I had a nice talk about market data, so everything's great. Well, it's actually pretty, it's been pretty grey here in Hong Kong. I think we switched weather, yeah, didn't we? <laughs> we kind of got like the typical UK weather here now. Um, but okay, well, since you did cold. the... <laughs> yeah, uh, well, since you, since you did the podcast interview this week, uh, why don't you tell the audience uh, who you interviewed and what you guys talked about? Sure. So um, I had uh, Manisha Kimmel, who is Chief Policy Officer at a vendor called May Street. Um, and we had a very complicated chat about um, a topic I've been covering quite a lot, which is the SEC's um, initiative to, as they put it, modernize the way that market data is disseminated in the national market system, which basically means like U.S. equities. Um, and we were really honing in on a very specific part of this initiative, which basically the SEC expanded the data that's going to go on the public feeds called the SIPs. Um, and they have to put forward new plans for what data will, what, what data, what they will be charging for data basically that goes on the SIPs. And it's been quite controversial. Um, and yeah, that's, that is a kind of summary of what we spoke about. It is a very complex topic. Um, for someone who's not a practitioner, so a uh, light thing to start the year with. <laughs> yes, extremely light. Well, I, I've had a listen to the interview actually, and I think it's it it is interesting, especially for someone like me who's really not familiar with uh, what the SEC is doing over there. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy it. Hi everyone, I'm back in a very silent office in a damp and unseasonally warm London and I'm talking today with Manisha Kimmel who is Chief Policy Officer at May Street and she's in a freezing Chicago, I believe. Um, Happy New Year Manisha, how has all 11 days of 2020 been for you so far? 2022, oh my gosh, where I'm stuck in the stuck in the COVID past 2022. 2022 has uh, started off well. Uh, you're right, it's uh, super cold here, um, but uh, there's a lot going on clearly in the regulatory space, so it's, uh, it's a good time to be in business. <laughs> it keeps you warm. Um, so obviously today we're talking about the National Market System Data Plan, which was put out for the kind of normal statutory notice and comment period last year. Comments were due on December 17th, um, obviously 2021. Um, and that new plan is part of a wider set of rather controversial initiatives, at least in some quarters from the SEC, to put in place a new system for, um, as they put it, modernizing the dissemination of quotation and transaction information in the NMS. It's quite a mouthful. Um, I use the word modernizing advisedly. I think like in this space, it's really easy to say something that you think is quite innocent. Um, and then you get a, a, a slightly indignant email the next day um, saying, well, actually, the, the SIPs are plenty modern already. So um, 
I, you know, I, I do, I do put air quotes around modernizing for the sake of objectivity. Um, but I've covered this topic uh, fairly in depth last year with a, a lot of help from Anisha um, and other sources. And what I really found quite interesting about it was the implications of this project, um, the kind of wider SEC initiative are quite far reaching for a wide range of players. But the community of vendors and exchanges and market participants who you'll find commenting and kind of being actively interested in it is actually still quite small. Um, maybe as it becomes more entrenched and the changes become more concrete, we'll kind of see broader interest. But um, that was a really long way of saying that I think among this community, there are a few who are as well equipped to talk about it as Manisha is. So uh, Manisha, having just implied that you really need no introduction, can you introduce yourself? Um, tell us a bit about your background, what led you to your current role and um, what is your interest in this topic that we're talking about today? Sure. So prior to um, joining May Street uh, early last year, I worked at the SEC where I um, was a senior policy advisor to Chair Clayton, focused primarily on the consolidated audit trail, which is another NMS plan. Um, prior to that, I've been in the regulatory space for about uh, 15 years where I focused on uh, different regulatory issues impacting the trading life cycle. So I was at um, Thomson Reuters that became Refinitiv as their uh, head of regulatory and compliance. And then I was also at RAN FIF, which is the Financial Information Forum, which covers both market data and, um, and you know, uh, regulatory issues. Brilliant. So yeah, this is very much um, in your wheelhouse, this, this current topic. So what's May Street's interest in here, particularly, I spoke to you guys about being a competing consolidator, um, for instance, and obviously that's where your comment letter, which is something we'll be talking about later in the podcast that comes up. Um, you guys are interested in taking up this mantle? Well, you know, I think one of the things that sort of uh, at a higher level for May Street is our, you know, interest in seeing market data work for market participants. And so, you know, we have, um, you know, looked from a technology perspective to offer cloud services from a, um, you know, quality perspective to offer, you know, the best quality data. And, and so in, in many ways, the, um, you know, initiatives with respect to market data are really about giving a better quality of service service to um, those who are interested in consolidated market data. And, you know, so the interest would be in, in really seeing that, you know, you have a consolidated market data offering that is more value than it is today, that is lower latency, and, um, you know, that is uh, widely available. Cool. Brilliant. Um, so I had about two or three weeks over December and early January, I, I basically took them off and I really wasn't thinking about market data or uh, really much at all. It, it was really like, where is the next mince pie coming from? Um, and, you know, even at the best of times, I find it quite difficult to keep track of all the intricacies of the SEC's efforts. I mean, we've had the the kind of infrastructure proposal on one side, and then we had the CT plan kind of evolution on the other side. Um, they had all kinds of touch points. There were all kinds of little pieces that fit together into this broader jigsaw. Um, so I thought maybe a good place to start for me, at least, and um, probably for the listener, would be kind of a refresher of what the SEC has done since it kind of first released these plans since 2020. Um, what is the CT plan? What are we talking about today? And how do all these puzzle pieces really fit together? 
Sure. So the CT plan is really about governance and governance of the equity plans that um, exist today. And so it has a couple of elements to it. You know, right now we have three equity plans. This would require uh, combining those into one. Uh, it would uh, change the voting structure so that non-SROs would have a vote. So basically the industry and consumers of market data would be voting participants. It would change that exchanges votes would not be per medallion, but per exchange group. So if you had a big exchange that exchange group that had, let's say six different exchanges underneath it, uh, instead of today where you would get six votes uh, in, in the new world, you would get, um, you know, one or two votes. Uh, you get an additional vote if you had market share, you know, above 15%, for example. Um, and so, you know, I think the reason why these two things go together, so that's a CT plan. And then the infrastructure rule is really about making consolidated market data better. And obviously the intersection is what governs both of those processes is these plans. And so, you know, what can get confusing is, you know, at what point does the CT plan become the plan that governs the activity of the market data infrastructure rule? Um, and, you know, how do they intermix? And part of what's so complicated about it is there's litigation on uh, with respect to both the market data infrastructure rule and the CT plan. And so, you know, most, you know, the action with respect to CT plan included a stay which means basically that the implementation of the rule stops. And so now it's a question of like, how is the um, litigation going to turn out? And is it going to be possible to move forward with both these uh, you know, rules in place? Or are we gonna find ourselves in a situation where only one is in place? Um, so, right, I mean, the three outcomes are both are in place, one is in place or none are in place. Uh, and so I think that's a big question for, for the community. But while we wait for this litigation process, which is going to, you know, for both of these initiatives, uh, final briefs are due at the end of this month. Um, and then the oral arguments would have to be scheduled. Uh, so, you know, the timeline is quite similar. And, you know, hopefully we, we understand what goes on. But there's still dates that are in the market data infrastructure rule that had to be met. And so that is really the November 5th date that um, we have talked about in the past. And, and that is the date when the fee plan amendment was required by, um, you know, by the SRO. So, you know, because the CT plan isn't in place, that's a fee plan amendment to the existing plans. But um, you know, once the CT plan would be in place, you know, it would have to be modified for, um, you know, for the for the market data infrastructure rule. Right. That, that's incredibly confusing already. Um, how, you know, would it be possible, I, I think, to have a world in which one operated without the other? I think that's quite a big question on a lot of people's minds, because um, as much as the SEC says that these these are two kind of different streams, the, the MDI, the infrastructure rule, and the kind of governance and plan, um, you know, I think they, they're very interoperating, aren't they? So there's a real um, question here. And, and, the, and the real question comes because if you look at the fee amendment that got approved, it is, um, you know, doesn't reflect uh, the um, votes of any non-SROs. 
um, nor does it reflect, uh, um, you know, an affirmative vote on any SRO that isn't SIBO, NYSE, or NASDAQ. So in this, if the CT plan were in place, you could imagine that it wouldn't have been possible to actually approve the fee amendment as it got done, because a really interesting thing about that fee amendment is there's a footnote that says the advisory committee you know, wanted it to be known that they did not believe that the um, amendment was fair and reasonable. And, and that, in fact, is the terms by which, it, you know, the determination of it can be approved is based on. Um, so, yeah, that's why people think they're related. Now, could you have, um, you know, a big exchange change their mind? Uh, you know, maybe. Um, and that seems to be the only way that you could get a different fee amendment and that is really a question I think a lot of people have. Right. Um, I think it's worth noting at this point as well that um, there's a bit of confusion on this point. The fact that they attained the stay, the SROs that is, attained the stay does not indicate which way the judgment could go. Um, it's just to make sure that most of this really complex stuff isn't kind of rolled out and then has to be re-rolled back in again should the plan be vacated. Um, I have heard uh, a bunch of people kind of confused about that point. Um, you'd, you'd agree with that? Yeah, I think, you know, the the sort of uh, threshold for getting a stay is 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 lower than the threshold for winning right. the the CT plan, um, you know, discussion in itself. Um, so there was uh, some litigation around the predecessor to the CT plan, which is a governance order, which directed the SROs to do the CT plan. So there are people who think that, you know, potentially the arguments that were made um, by the, um, you know, SROs and the comments that some of the judges made during that proceeding is in favor of the SROs. But, you know, in terms of the actual like legal standard for a stay versus an actual dismissal of the of the rule, it, it's a very big difference. Right. Um, have, have there been any briefs filed um, that, that are kind of visible yet, or is it still all to be, is it still all to come by the end of this month? Yeah, so um, the way the process works is, you know, the petitioner files their brief, and then there's a chance for the SEC to respond, and then the, um, you know, petitioners file another brief, and, and then you get to final briefs. And so we have seen um, the, um, we have seen briefs on both sides now from um, the the SROs and 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 the SEC. All right, great. Um, so I think probably diving into that is the topic of another um, podcast altogether. What we want to talk about today um, is really what came out of the statutory notice and comment period that ended on December seventeenth and resulted in a bunch of comment letters being filed on the new plan. Um, they're available on the SEC's website, of course, but I will try to remember post that link in the show notes. Um, it's often quite difficult to find these things. Um, so obviously, as May Street, um, you've got some views. You you guys filed a comment letter. Um, there are some other commenters that um, would agree or disagree. I think it'd be interesting to get into some of those opinions. Um, but before we kind of get into that, what does this plan actually do? Um, for instance, I, I think we have like the linking of the pricing of consolidated feeds to the direct feeds, which has proved to be a little bit controversial. Um, yeah, can you kind of pick out some of the really main high level um, headlines, I guess, that's, that you find in this plan? 
So the amendment is intended to set the fees for the underlying content of consolidated market data. So, you know, getting data um, to, in, to enable the creation of an NBBO and multiple price levels for the depth of book uh, product. And so, um, you know, what the plan amendment does is it sets the fee for the top of book, um, you know, basically what you get today plus odd lots at the same price as we have today. It gets you, uh, it adds a, a new fee for depth of book, which doesn't include top of book. And um, it did that based on um, basically scale, a, a multiple. So that's the controversy you mentioned, which is that multiple is based on a comparison of uh, top, top of book feeds to a depth of book feeds and um, calculated that way. And then the third thing it does with respect to auctions is it says everybody is gonna pay 10% of, um, of the um, you know, depth of book feed. Uh, and that is gonna be based on the professional um, fee level. And so one of the things to, to notice and that's kind of striking is what didn't change with this rule. So pro, non-pro is still there. There are no um, enterprise uh, or, or per um, or snapshot uh, availability for depth of book or um, for, um, you know, for the auction data. And it didn't really distinguish that competing consolidators are this new thing that only exists because of this rule. And what's new about them is they're not affiliated. They're not part of the plan you know, like the exclusive SIPs are today. And they are, you know, creating a separate product from this underlying data that they're being given by the SROs. Right. Um, I think there are a bunch of concerns that come up for that community, um, which I think there were only, I think it was just you guys and Nervous Box that commented on this particular round. Um, though we know that there are a bunch of other vendors uh, you know, kind of interested in throwing their hats in the ring, as they say, to be a competing consolidator. Um, essentially, as I understand it, these concerns kind of, they boil down to not being able to make a real go of it as competing consolidators. You you can't really, you can't make a profit, essentially. Um, it, it's a bit like, it's almost like what's happened in the EU with the emergence of the consolidated tape here. Um, so yeah, you know, am, am I framing this issue correctly? We, you were kind of hoping for a bit more give from the SROs, um, prior to the plan being released, prior to the amendments, rather? Well, I think there's an interesting question here, which is, you know, is, is the underlying content essentially the raw ingredients? And, you know, is the cost of creating the, that content completely divorced from the distribution of that content? So, you know, the way the rule is written is that the SROs could just give their proprietary data feed to the compete consolidators and they would, you know, figure out how to get to the, you know, levels of depth and, and create the MBBO and that would be on them. Um, in that sort of world, you have to ask yourself, well, like, what is the true cost to the exchanges? Um, it's basically a very incremental cost because they already have this, you know, infrastructure around their proprietary data feeds. And so in, in you know, one take of that, um, you know, if you take, extend that concept further, then you would expect a fixed cost for the um, data because it actually doesn't cost more if a competing consolidate, you know, doesn't cost the exchange more 
if they're supplying that data and that's being distributed to two people versus 2000 people, right? Their cost is the same because the, the you know, variable cost comes with the distribution costs. Um, and so, you know, that's what we talked about in the rule, right? In our, I'm sorry, in our comment letter, because in the rule, the SEC talked about um, reasonable, fair and reasonable could be tied to cost. And so that that's sort of the cost argument. Then on the other side, there's the value argument. You know, how, how can you sell a product when the cost of the raw ingredients is equal to the current cost of the product? You know what I mean? Because basically you're saying that the value of consolidation is zero because, you know, the the new things that the consolidator adds to the table are are the MBBO, these price levels and a distribution framework and uh, and the normalization across the SRO data. Right. And so it it's sort of inconceivable that you could, to your point, make it a, make a go of it if there's actually no incentive for people to use a competing consolidator because it will be more expensive than, than the SIP is today. Um, so just to play devil's advocate here for a bit, I think um, NASDAQ, you know, they, they came out with a pretty very cogent explanation of the issue from the SRO perspective. Um, I think they're not just NASDAQ, but the, the SROs in general, they've always said the SIPs are really good, reliable, top of book, consolidated data feed. You can buy the depth of book from them if you want to. Um, I don't think we'll get into that. I think there's, that's been canvassed a lot. But um, speaking specifically about this, this plan amendment, you know, they say the NMS plans collectively set these fees, they're shaped by kind of market forces, and it's really the fairest means of doing so is you're kind of, and this is where we get to your point, um, you're basing the fees on the value of the underlying data. So their argument is that any cost allocation between joint products is arbitrary, I think is how they put it, and would have to be conducted with a uniform rubric established by the commission. Um, why did the commission not come out with such a rubric in the first place? Did they, you know, was was this a something that they might have considered? So, it, because it's the um, plan's responsibility to set fees, the uh, SEC could only direct them to do so, and then you know remind the SROs of the statutory framework under which, like, any fee amendment could be approved. Namely, that it you know it is fair and unreasonable, fair, fair and reasonable, and not unreasonably discriminatory. So those are the standards which you know that's the framework that the SEC gave to the SROs. But you know because this is governed by an NMS plan, the the responsibility of setting the fees is the SROs. Right. I see. Okay. Um, so how would you kind of respond to? Um, you know, I don't want to pick on Nasdaq specifically, I'm sure the other SROs agree, but how would you respond to that? You've already kind of, um, you've already said how it kind of disadvantages the competing consolidators, but um, I think there's a kind of broader, more philosophical question here about costs and values. Um, you know, would you, would you have anything specific to say about the Nasdaq letter in particular? So, you know, they point to, um, you know, Competition is the best uh, way of setting prices in in general, and um, you know I think what they um, you know don't think about is what is the point of consolidated market data, right? If you look at the congressional mandate with respect to consolidated market data, it was about assuring availability, and so if the 
problem that we have with proprietary feeds is they're not accessible to everybody because of their price point. It sort of misses the point that, um, you know, to, to set consolidated fees based on proprietary feeds. And, and I think when we talk about, you know, competition, I think you have to acknowledge that where you're going to get competition is at the competing consolidator level, because those are the entities that are, um, you know, uh, selling the same product, which is consolidated market data. But what the um, SROs are providing as an input to consolidated market data is just the underlying content. And the reason why they're giving it is to make sure that this there's a there's a basic set of data that's available widely to investors. Is there anything else within that kind of before we get onto the policies, basically? So the kind of cost versus value um, you've been talking. I think you know, obviously, you, you guys did that amazing Twitter thread where you really cogently um, you said, for instance, the you know, as you said at the top of um, this part of the call, um, how the SROs were really conflating the fees that competing consolidators would pay for underlying content and the fees that they would charge for consolidated market data. So yeah, is there anything else you'd like to say on, on these points? I mean, I think that's the, um, the you know, discussion we've had to date in terms of looking at the, um, uh, you know, how the fees are gonna be set up. But I think the, there, there's another point in our comment letter that talks about the focus on uh, competing consolidators being just like vendors. And, and so, you, you know, one of the things that we point out is the plans today are our plans for distributing competing consolidated market data, right? And um, the plans in the new world, what the fee amendment does is change that to these are the costs of the underlying content. And so you have a world where, you know, today everybody is, is paying the plans for consolidated market data either directly or indirectly, and, and that how it, that's how it works, right? But in tomorrow's world, you have competing consolidators who are the only entities who can distribute consolidated market data, and they're getting an input from the um, you know, from the exchanges and FINRA, and and they're creating their own product from there. And and the reason why that's like important is because there's a set of fees in today's world that only have to do with distribution. So there's redistribution fees, which are basically fees because the SIP today is giving you a feed and then you're sending it to somebody else, but that doesn't apply in the competing consolidator world because the competing consolidator is actually generating the consolidated market data. So there, any distribution that they do it's distribution in an initial distribution, right? They're not redistributing. Um, and then the other point is like access fees. What does access fees have to do with the um, value of the underlying content? Again, that is a distribution fee. Um, and so, you know, we think, you know, there was no change to the contracts for vendors and, and it was uh, stated that vendors and competing consolidators would have the same contracts. But how can that be the case when you switch to basically selling a different product, underlying content versus consolidated market data, and you're selling it to different people? 
You know, you, you're selling the, these raw ingredients to um, competing consolidators and self-aggregators, and only competing consolidators can distribute that data. Um, and so the relationship with these end users is completely different because today it's a relationship with respect to the whole product. And tomorrow it's only a relationship with respect to a component of that product. Um, so we would have expected far greater changes in the in the uh, fee amendment to basically acknowledge that it is a new world with competing consolidators, and we should think about how how things really change and, and do it in a way that works. I mean, you mentioned that you know there's a lot of people who say, "Look, we're we're fine, we're fine right now, and things are good enough." But the reality is, this rule changes that. So to comply with the rule. You know, you can argue that the rule is, you know, invalid and that's what the exchanges are doing through litigation. But, you know, to the extent that that is the rule, you have to comply within its framework um, with respect to this fee amendment. Um, the another issue that was raised, you know, when we were maybe prepping for this podcast, you mentioned policies. Um, those are unchanged. And you, you were talking about how that gives competing consolidators flexibility or not. Can you kind of expand on this point? So, you know, let, let me know what you mean there. Yeah, so, um, you know, they will continue the uh, pro non pro distinction, which is based on, uh, you know, a bespoke definition that's only exists in the plans. Um, and, uh, you know, they are not making any changes to um, the enterprise uh, caps, right? Even though we know that those enterprise caps are, are, are viewed by many in the industry as, as just too high, right? So imagine you're starting a new business and, you know, you have to pay for your raw ingredients. So, you know, you have to pay for, you know, the sugar and you're, you're uh, you know, um, having a bakery, you know, how is it that your raw ingredient provider is going to cost, you know, charge you differently, whether or not you're making, you know, fancy cupcakes or, you know, simple ones, it, 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 it doesn't make sense. And because you have that complexity, um, you know, it, it absolutely will impact your own pricing, your, you know, the compliance cost. Um, and the fact that, you know, the costs associated with, um, you know, consolidated market data are not just the direct cost of, you know, paying for the content or paying for the consolidated data. It's the administration and, um, and the compliance risk. And, and this is something that, you know, if we are failing to address when we have the opportunity to do so. Great, thanks. Um, Manisha, I think you've given a really good overview of the points that were raised um, in your guys, in May Street's comment letter. And then you've also um, tweeted a pretty cogent explanation of your arguments. Um, I think condensing these things into a Twitter thread that's pretty short is, is quite impressive. Um, so I'll try to remember to pop that in the show notes as well. Um, but maybe it'd be interesting, I think, to look at some of the other comment letters. Um, I think there were a parade of the usual suspects, if, as you might call it. And I didn't see some other usual suspects there that I might have expected to, um, who've commented fairly prolifically on other bits. But um, yeah, what did you what did you make of the other letters? Yeah, so there were um, 14 letters as of today. And um, as you mentioned, Memex had put out a comment letter um, earlier, right right when the uh, vote had happened. So it actually preceded the publication of the, um, 
uh, of the amendments in uh, in either the SEC site or the Federal Register. Um, and they were, you know, a lot of the same arguments that we've talked about in that are in our letter are in these other letters. Interestingly, you know, Memex did an analysis of the pro non pro or sorry, the top of book um, prop feed, uh, you know, multiple that they used and suggested that it was, you know, both too high and not really apples to apples. Um, there were, uh, you know, a, a number of um, comment letters from users of market data, you know, typically, you know, mainly, uh, you know, institutional investors and, and trading firms that talked about how, you know, this doesn't really work to, to make things better. Um, and, um, you know, it was interesting, there was a comment letter by, um, by a firm that uh, came just today, they're, uh, you know, they're an international firm and they made the point that, you know, it's not just the content of the prop feeds that, you know, is different, um, you know, versus a consolidated feed. It is also the latency. And so that's another reason why the value associated with the consolidated feeds, you know, should go down. Um, so I thought that was a pretty interesting point. As we discussed, NASDAQ was the only um, commenter that was for the amendment and defended it. Um, whereas the other comment letters, you know, many went, uh, you know, so far as to say it should be disapproved, which is something that our comment letter also said. Right. Um, I think that that's a good segue into what the what I was going to round off with, which is, you know, what happens now, um, maybe for people who might not have such a grasp on the kind of statutory process, what does the SEC do with these letters? And, um, you know, I'm not going to ask you to prognosticate on whether it's going to be um, disapproved or not. But yeah, maybe maybe any any insight you can give us into the process. Yeah, so the SEC, from a statutory perspective, has 90 days to either uh, approve, disapprove, or institute proceedings of, of whether to approve or disapprove. And so um, they can obviously act before then or um, wait. And, you know, a lot of the calculus from a strategic perspective that other people have mentioned to me is that they think, you know, they want to see how the CT plan litigation goes and, you know, pass it back to the SROs at a point where you have new people involved in the voting structure. Um, but that's, you know, speculation. So we, we have to see on that front. Regarding the, the litigation timing, uh, as I mentioned, the briefs are uh, due at the end of January, and then there's oral arguments, and then a, a decision to be made uh, within the CT stay order. They also agreed to expedited briefings. Um, so maybe, or expedited proceedings. So maybe we will see uh, something from the court sooner rather than later there. Um, but, you know, either way, we should know where uh, the, um, you know, what the SEC's thinking is by February, um, you know, in terms of the approval, disapproval, or, or instituting proceedings. Right. I think it's, um, it's a lot like last year, where it was very much if you're in this space and you're wanting to be, for instance, a competing consolidator, um, you have to really be quite uh, comfortable with a lot of discomfort and a lot of uncertainty. Um, and things can change on a, I mean, I wouldn't say on a dime, maybe <laughs> maybe in the regulatory 
in, in the regulatory context, it's uh, it's all moving very quickly, but it doesn't feel like it. Um, so I, I guess just to just to finish this call, what are you guys doing as Main Street? Um, are you very, you know, I, I guess you've obviously got your eye on this space, but do you just kind of sit back and let it all happen now? Or are you kind of um, making preparations? You know, how do you think about this as a competing consolidator? Well, so much depends on this fee amendment, really. And so, um, you know, we're talking to market participants about uh, the fee filing and our comment letter. And uh, it's expected that the SROs that approved the fee amendment will respond to comments. And so it's likely that we will uh, file another comment letter in response. Um, and, uh, you know, I think advocacy can occur on a number of levels and that's really our next step right now. Great. Um, well, Manisha, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and thank you so much for explaining these issues really um, as usual in a, in a very understandable and cogent way. I think I'm not the only person who finds them very difficult to, um, to untangle. Um, and I, I certainly appreciate your insight. Thank you. No problem. Thanks, thanks to you.